You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Well, we are so excited to have you here today with us, Dr. Tom Rust. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're excited to talk about your new book, which is called Watching Over Yellowstone, the U.S. Army's Experience in America's First National Park, 1886 to 1918. But before we jump into that, I just wanted to tell everyone a little bit about you and your background. So you are a professor of history at Montana State University Billings in Billings, Montana, and grew up in Bozeman, Montana, right? Yes, that is correct. Wonderful, wonderful. You graduated with a bachelor's in history in 1992 from the University of Minnesota, and then you came back um, to the West, and you received your master's in history from the University of Denver in 1995, where you worked on American military history, and more specifically, Fort Ellis. which we're going to talk a little bit more about here in just a few minutes. Um, You've published a book on Fort Ellis called Lost Fort Ellis, A Frontier History of Bozeman, Montana, and then went on to receive your um, MED from MSU Billings in 1999 before completing a PhD at the University of Leicester in 2006. So you've worked, Tom, in history, but you also work in archaeology as well. And you've done a lot of archaeological projects here in Montana, but Mm -hmm. throughout the West on American military history. Yes. Well, all sorts of history. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, I've I've dug in Israel to Seattle. So it's 3,000 years and 3,000, you know, 4,000, 5,000, whatever many miles. So yeah. All over the place. yeah. <laughs> right, right. And you've done a lot of different types of history. You've done um, military history, but you've also done cemetery history as well. So, of course, yes. I wanted to bring that up because that's <laughs> the cool project that you worked on. I, I'm all over the place. A little ADHD, I suppose. I'm all over. So. <laughs> and and also Lewis and Clark, right? You've done a little bit of yeah. We uh, discovered one of the Lewis and Clark, one of the one of the three uh, known Lewis and Clark campsites. Uh, in the in the country and right south of Park City, there we uh, did a project there in uh, 2011 to 15, and that was that was a very exciting project. That was that was yes. that was an interesting project to hear about. And then you and I and Nancy have worked together most recently mm-hmm. on the Nevada City Cemetery project. So we yes. did some magnetometry at Nevada City Cemetery a couple of summers ago mm-hmm. in 2018. Is that right? I think that's I think that's right. Yeah. Twenty eighteen, the summer of twenty eighteen, yeah. and then we did a, a brief little revisit this this last summer. Yeah, too, yeah, so. we did. <laughs> maybe we'll maybe we'll have to talk about that in a later show. Uh, yeah, but <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna become famous from that little revisit, aren't we? <laughs> 
So, um, so, and at Nevada City Cemetery, you did um, a lot of magnetometry and ground penetrating radar yes. to better understand where the graves are at the mm-hmm. Nevada City Cemetery and how many how many graves were in right. the Nevada City Cemetery. And I think we came up with about. 328? Yeah. Was that about right. I, I can't remember the exact yeah. number. It's about that. It was over 300. So and yeah. only 250 of those are marked. So mm-hmm. it was quite a, a great project to be able to better understand where those graves are um, yeah. because it is still an active cemetery. So it's right. important to know where those where those are. So, All right. Well, I'm so glad you're with us here today, Tom. It's, um, it's just great to have you here. And you're actually here, Tom, which is great. It's yeah. not virtual. I'm so excited. Right. We're not doing this over Zoom. So yeah, this is very fun to have you in the same room. It's great to be in person. Yeah. We are socially distanced, but um, completely able to look each other in the eye, uh, not through a a computer screen. So that's great. So before we get to your book, Watching Over Yellowstone, we wanted to just ask you a little bit about your work at Fort Ellis, because as Crystal said, all three of us have worked there different Mm -hmm. times in different ways. And Fort Ellis um, was a post established 1867, nine miles, is that right, outside of Bozeman? The fort was in operation until 1887, so it just overlaps with that beginning period of your book, what you cover. So we just wanted to this ask... This book, my, my first book, obviously, in Fort Ellis. Is all about Fort about Ellis, that, and we yeah. should say, you have another book. You may right. even have more books than that, so yeah. we're talking about at least two of them today. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so what do you, some of the biggest takeaways from your historical investigations of the men and women there, because there were both men and women there. Mm. I know you looked at the relationship between the fort and uh, Bozeman society, right. as well as the regional population with Crow, Blackfeet, mm-hmm. Northern Cheyenne. Right. The, my biggest takeaway from it was that the relation, we have this, this tendency, and it's, it's understandable that people envision the army in the West with John Wayne riding in and things like that. Although, ironically, you know, the best John Wayne movies, he doesn't really fight. I mean, you know, you talk about, like, you know, she wore a yellow ribbon and stuff. I mean, the best part of the movie is that he avoids a big battle as, you know, in, as well as marching through the Monument Valley. Um, but that being said, that's kind of shaped, of course, our image and, and um, the relationship between settlers and, and soldiers was oftentimes contentious. But um, this, you know, there was some tension there, obviously, but there was also a kind of a love-hate thing going because they loved having all that federal money come pouring into town. Uh, you know, there, Bozeman was, was kind of unique because it wasn't a mining settlement. And they were more of agriculture, and they were feeding the mining settlements, giving food and stuff. But they really wanted, especially the uh, money from the soldiers, and you know, not just the soldiers' paychecks, but also the contracts and and you know things like that. Because you know, a fort that's constantly um, going, you know, they have a lot of needs between wood, you know, to keep you know keep constructing the buildings and then heating the buildings. They needed uh, the stuff for the horses. They needed. Uh, you know, supplies for the men. And so they loved and constantly were um, contracting with the local people. And the people loved that. But they would also take advantage of those dollars, too. And they would uh, act uh, somewhat less than honestly, shall we say, uh, in trying to secure those federal dollars. So 
Um, so there was this love-hate relationship going on there. And it was there was also kind of a, you know, the, the aristocracy, if you will, of the town and the officer corps had a little bit more camaraderie uh, going on than obviously with the soldiers and then the soldiers and then uh, kind of the average Joes in the town. They had a little bit more camaraderie. But again, a love-hate relationship, fights would break out, um, you know, dishonesty, stealing, uh, all sorts of all sorts of fun. So, and the baseball games, they, they played baseball against either because of the town every town out here had a baseball team and the fort had a baseball team and one of the baseball games between bozeman and fort ellis got a little rough with all the oh. broken bones and oh no you know, wow stuff. yeah it was <laughs> i knew bad. they had a theater and that there was going back and forth in dances mm-hmm. i didn't know there was a, yeah. a rough housing baseball game yeah there was a baseball and the score was i, I can't remember exactly now what the score is but i mean it was like 30 to nothing and you know <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> or, or 30 to 2 yeah. or something but, yeah. but there was broken noses and broken fingers wow. and i mean it, it was getting a little rough out there the town in the newspaper they felt they needed to uh, explain away why the score was so lopsided like well the those soldiers those lazy soldiers at the fort that's all they do is practice baseball <laughs> some of these guys have never never played on the team before you know because they're, they're busy working you know so it was kind of funny. oh goodness goodness so did any of those enlisted men or officers end up uh in yellowstone because i know people used fort ellis as a base to do the original surveys of the area right, right. they um yeah the the hayden valley or the hayden expedition actually left from here and and all of that and when uh sheridan uh uh or uh, excuse me sherman went through the park in 1877 i guess you know he left he's everybody would stop at fort ellis first and many of the soldiers would escort there. As far as being garrisoned in there, the Second Cavalry was one of the units that was regularly stationed in the park. So I don't have the full muster rolls of every enlisted man. So I wouldn't be surprised if some did. However, I also wouldn't be surprised if there were not very many because by 18, by, even though there was a little overlap, you know, when you get into the 1780s, Fort Ellis is really. A shadow of its former self. Most of the combat units have already left. It's mostly a supply depot that's supplying the forts that are now more spread out, like Assiniboine and Custer, which is over by Hard, and Assiniboine's up by Haver, uh, McGinnis over by Lewistown. Um, Fort Ellis is no longer really on the front lines like it used to be, but it's a supply depot. Why? Gallatin Valley Agriculture. Right, um, right. So it had, you know, it didn't have as near as many soldiers as it as it used to have. Um, and so I, I don't know for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised, but I also wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't the case. So, okay. um, maybe yes, maybe no. I don't, I just don't unfortunately mm-hmm. know. Oh, that's okay. Something for yeah. the future to there investigate. Yeah. Yeah. So your new work mm-hmm. on, um, with your book, Watching Over Yellowstone focuses on the U.S. Army in the National Park. Right. What brought you to write about this subject? <laughs> It's, well, it, I mean, it's kind of in the, you know, in the realm of what you were writing about, but it's a little bit different. It's a little bit of a... Yeah, it's a little bit different. Um, so I used to work in Yellowstone Park uh, in one of my many former lives. Uh, from about 92 to 98 or 9, I worked in Yellowstone Park at, uh, as a controller, which is bizarre because I was, you know, basically I was an accountant and a uh, historian with math anxiety doing accounting. So <laughs> it's like living a Woody Allen movie. Yeah, really. that is so, a little you know, strange. Yeah. Yeah, right? uh, but it was a great time. And 
you realize in the 90s, um, the internet was, was a thing, but it wasn't a big thing yet. And it wasn't in Yellowstone Park, for sure. I mean, there wasn't even television in Yellowstone Park. <laughs> and so, you know, I was in graduate school at the time, too. And so, you know, if I didn't, wasn't reading, I didn't know what to do with myself. And so I was, we were reading, I was reading a book um, as Aubrey Haynes' story of Yellowstone. And he had, you know, he had two chapters in there on it. And I'm like, there's got to be more to this. And so, you know, I looked on up, you know. On the soldiers? On the four, on, on the military era. On the military, era, military? The, okay. And so I was, uh, yeah, I read that. I was like, there's more of that. Then there was um, Lee Whittlesey's book, uh, uh, Death in Yellowstone had a great story, which I found out was actually completely wrong. But um, uh, but nonetheless, it was uh, I, I was starting to get aware of this, and I'd kind of always known that the military was there because uh, Mammoth Hot Springs today, even all the administration buildings of the park is is the old fort, and so I was kind of aware of that forever because I've lived in Bozeman and always traveled to, to the park and you know just for day trips even back you know it was crazy like we'll go hey what should we do this afternoon oh we got to, let's go let's go to the park and so we drive to the park as if the park as if there's any other park um but so when i'm there and i'm reading that like there's got to be more to do but i was already kind of locked into doing fort ellis and then um after that just other projects keep coming up and i never quite quite got to it and but i was kind of aware and i was like there's got to be more to this um and so um uh, I, I, you know, eventually uh, was hired at MSCB and I was working and every project came up and all of a sudden yeah, I was going to get to it and then all of a sudden, you know, Lewis and Clark pops up. And, <laughs> uh, so I was like, you can't turn that one down. Right, so right, right. I, I turned that, I uh, got on that. So then, you know, the, um, the, everything was, I kind of cleared my schedule. I was fully promoted, had tenure and I could kind of do whatever I wanted to and um, and I built up some, some goodwill, so there was a, uh, I could apply for grants at the university, and they're like, sure, you go ahead. You know, Lewis and Clark got me a lot of goodwill over there, and so <laughs> got me a grand penetrating radar, too. Nice. But, nice. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, that's good. So I took advantage of the moment and uh, applied for a sabbatical, and um, got some money, and we went to the National Archives and uh, started plowing through the records there and started going through other records, of course. Um, but the National Archives was my richest source, and there was so much more there than, than I could ever have hoped for. Was that in um, D.C.? Yes. Washington, D.C.? Right there uh, in uh, Washington, down right in the same building with, uh, with the Constitution that's and the wonderful. Declaration. Yep. So for people who don't know that early history, can you explain just briefly why is it that the Park Service was run by the military? Um, oh, no, it wasn't, I shouldn't say the Park Service. Why was Yellowstone National Park run by the military? Because that was the first and only park for a while. Oh, because the real bad guys of the story, Congress. Um, it was politicians. Man. So nothing's changed is what you're saying. No, no nothing's changed. Um, so what happened? So they, they come up with this idea for Yellowstone Park. You know, they explore it. It sounds great. The, the reports are coming back of these amazing things in this region that, you know, are, it's kind of hard to get to. And the, the Northern Pacific Railroad in particular thought it would be a wonderful idea because the West is starting to calm down. They need to get people out here. And they start thinking, tourism, tourism's the answer. And so we can start uh, selling tickets to, to on our trains. And, and, of course, it's going to be wealthy people who are going to be able to afford to take the time off and to afford the train and then to take another week and go through Yellowstone and then take another week and get back on the trains and have a good, grand old time. So they pressure, or don't pressure, they lobby Congress uh, to pass the Yellowstone uh, Creation Act in 1872, which Congress is like, you bet, we'll do it, with really no idea about 
without any thought about administering this. Now, the precedent had been set with Yosemite, where um, you know preserving the Yosemite Valley uh, was was an idea that you know came to fruition. But what Congress did was. Um, condemn the land and then give it to the state. To so it was make. a state responsibility. Yeah, this, exactly. This was, this was a different deal being a national park. Exactly. And the reason it was a national park is because the people of Montana wanted this to be a park, and it was more important to the people of Montana, but the majority of the park was in Wyoming. So it creates a jurisdictional awkwardness, shall we say. And so the idea of condemning it and giving a chunk of Wyoming to Montana, which were the people, the closest, the, the majority of the population was here anyway, it was more important in the people of Montana that the access to it was going to be through the north, through Montana anyway. And so it really was this this awkward thing that it was in Wyoming, but Montana was really the important driver of this. And the Northern Pacific, of course, goes through Montana, not Wyoming at that time. So um, so it was, what do we do? Well, let's make a national park out of it. But again, when they did Yosemite, like you said, they dumped it on California and said, figure it out. Uh, whereas now it's like, oh, we're going to create it. And then nobody was like, oh, how are we going to administer it? And I don't even know if they thought about what would happen. So now you have a chunk of land that mm-hmm. you're saying is a park. And and what actually was happening there? Yeah, well, and that was the thing because all of a sudden the locals were like, "Oh, really? Okay, let's take advantage of that." You and can't homestead it technically legally, mm-hmm. but people still went in. Well, yeah, people were going in, and there was so much game that you could hunt in there, you know. And there's no law enforcement really. I mean, they did allow a superintendent, but they paid him so small that he had to keep his job outside. And so there was a series of superintendents that rarely went to the park, maybe once or twice a year uh, in the summer for a couple days. And that was it. Otherwise, they're here in Montana. One was in Michigan a lot. I mean, I mean, these superintendents were really underpaid and not really doing anything. So it's more or less the Wild West, literally there. They're hunting, they're, you know, they're trapping. The railroad people are building hotels and they're putting hot springs, you know, hot, like tapping the hot springs for swimming pools. And, I mean, it's, it's every man for himself in there. And it's, it's, it's wild. Probably cutting down trees. Oh, they were cutting down trees. They're trapping. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a really, and I have it in the book. uh, There's this this picture that's that's very shocking on the railroad platform just outside Yellowstone, where there's you know dozens of elk carcasses that have been harvested in the park. All the locals are around, and there's two little kids holding their daddy's guns, being all proud in front of all these elk, and all the all the locals are like you know they're real proud with how many elk they harvested. I mean, it's just (laughs) it's crazy so what did congress then want the military to do well we're not even there yet we're we're not even to the military yet (laughs) okay so what happens then is that you know i mean it's just a a wild free-for-all and uh lieutenant general philip sheridan uh, travels through the park he loves the park he's absolutely in love with the park so he goes, he's made several trips through, and he's shocked by what he's seeing. And so he starts telling cars, you need to do something. And if you don't, I can have the military. If you don't want to do it, I'll have the military come in and do it. So he volunteers, but yet it's not that uh, Congress is like, eh, no, no, and the Secretary of the Interior is like, no, 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 this is, this is my bureaucratic territory. You, you, know, you just stay out. But then Congress, there was uh, uh, Senator Vest from Missouri was – very much a proponent of the park. And he wanted, tried to secure funding for it. 
and he couldn't get it, couldn't get it. And then Congress cut with little funding they had for the superintendents um, to be able to, to administer the park. They basically cut it. But they had uh, vested, had a long, several years before put in a proviso in the, in the um, budget package that if requested by the Secretary of the Interior, the U.S. Army, he can invite the U.S. Army in to administer it. So by 1886, uh, literally Congress decided, yep, we're done with the park. Um, except for a few bears, but they didn't have the numbers. And so it was the budget that went through was just slashed to virtually nothing. And so the Secretary of the Interior had no choice but to ask the Army to come in because there, otherwise the park was going to be there. And there were a number of people who knew what cutting the budget meant and that they wanted to basically open the park up and give it to the railroads. And so the Secretary of the Interior recognized that, Senator Vest, a couple other politicians, they realized what was going on. But they were like, yeah, let's just give it to the railroads. We don't want this. It's a, it's a strain on the budget. This is, you know, the era of laissez-faire, small government. We don't want, you know, this is just a, this is a government drain. Wow. And so the government was, you know, Congress knew by slashing, they were giving, they were slashing it in order to kill it. And uh, so fortunately, when Vest had put that, that several years before, put that proviso in the budget bill that, oh yeah, if the Secretary of Interior asks, then the, the Army can come in. Um, that saved the park, literally saved the park. Because wow. then, because um, had there been no money, I mean, there, it, would, it, even, it would have been even worse than what it was. And eventually they would have said, let's get rid of the park. And the railroads would have been more than happy to take over the park. They already had plans on the yeah, northern half of would, the park yeah. to lay track up there. They wanted to run it in, so have big, you know, smelly, you know, coal-fired steam engines going right through the middle of the park to all the, all the features. So you got a picture like Old Faithful, a train will come up with billowing all sorts of black smoke and steam and you know people would get off and it would and have been a very different place it really would have been wow. so that was how they got in and so they really didn't congress didn't have a plan the government the the, the secretary of interior was just like we need something here because otherwise it's going to go away and he believed enough in it and so it was sheridan who came in and said okay here we go so he brings in some troops from fort custer over by Hardin, um, and they don't even know how long they're going to be there so they get there in the summer of 18, excuse me, 86. They set up some tam, uh, some a camp by Mammoth in tents. Then they put some people around the park to kind of, uh, you know, uh, station it uh, around where they could be by the tourists and, and provide some, some level of enforcement. But they didn't know what they wanted either. They didn't know what they were doing. They had to make this all up as they go. And you have to, this is this is one of the parts of the book that, that it struck me is that these soldiers had no idea what they were doing. They had to literally make it up as they went along. And, you know, because they're trained to, you know, fight in units, military units, cavalry units, you know, on an open field, sabers or pistols or, you know, carbines and uh, do maneuvers on open fields against other enemy that are shooting back at them. Patrolling a park for tourists? That's not, <laughs> you know, for poachers? That's not what they were trained for. And so, you know, they really had to make it up as they go. And the fact that they turned over units so frequently, the average unit is only there for two years or, or thereabouts, and then they just rotate through. Now, like, the, some companies will come back after several years, but, you know, they're just constantly rotating through that once they kind of figure it out, then they're out. they got to move on to the Philippines or wherever. So they didn't know what they wanted. They just know that they wanted somebody there to provide law enforcement. And that's an awkward relationship mm. too when yeah, you think that about is. it that really very, is. Very. Yeah. because 
you know, you have to put this in the context of the time. It, right after the Civil War, the Army wasn't really thrilled about providing domestic law enforcement duties. They had done it during Reconstruction, mm. and they did not like that duty. The Southern Democrats certainly did not like them doing that duty. Right. Um, and so that was very awkward. Now, and, and you realize by 1886, Reconstruction's a pretty fresh memory, okay? And those Southern Democrats are now in Congress, and they're starting to get some some you know some of their feet back under them in, in having some political pull again. In fact, you know Senator Vest, who was a big proponent of the park, he was a he was a, a, a member of the Confederate Congress. Mm-hmm. So you know, mm-hmm. so that's an interesting bit. So they they all understand it. So they're not. This is an awkward relationship. Plus, then you got to realize in the North, um, we're talking about you know the era of labor unrest, where um, the U.S. Army can be called in, and the Great Railway Strike of 1877 is is you know one of the most uh, egregious examples of that where, um, you know, the army came in and took over the railroads and had to quell um, uh, and provide law enforcement a- a- activities to, to stop the rioting of uh, the local riotings that were occurring during the railway strike. So northern Democrats did not like the army doing that. And they passed a, a law called the Posse Comitatus Act that specifically forbids the U.S. Army from providing civilian law enforcement. And then and- Westerners don't want the federal government policing this land. They want the money. Right, but they... right, they don't want... Yeah, I mean, and so much of the lands that were still... Um, hadn't been homesteaded, part of the general land office, you know, that they were kind of used as a common. So I'm sure the way they oh, thought yeah. of the park was very much like, who are these soldiers policing? Such a strange time. Well, and that using it as a common, you're absolutely right, because that all that game in the park was, why shouldn't people use it. And and there were two types of poaching, really. I mean, there was the commercial poaching where you'd go in and, and try to make money, commercial money, until you kill buffalo or you'd kill elk and then take the meat and sell it to the miners in Butte or take the eye teeth or whatever from, from elk. But then there's also this kind of uh, what uh, Carl uh, Jacoby calls, um, um, Oh, geez, I just lost the word there. But uh, uh, moral ecology, yes. where the local people yes. um, use the, the they, they see it as theirs, which is a, a longstanding tradition in America that this mm-hmm. game is, it's not like Europe where all game is the, the Lord's game unless he gives you permission. In America, ever since, you know, when we started having colonists, the game was so abundant, it was ours. And you used it, and and it's not that they just hunted willy nilly to extinction. They actually, in their minds, knew when to when to pull back, and they use it for their own good. And so there's, and, and this tends to be more of a you know kind of a, a class difference as far as hunting. It's not sport hunting for the thrill of hunting. You know, release the hounds kind of thing. Right. It's man, I got to put food on my table. Yeah, and, and there was so, a lot of sport hunters though that started the conservation movement. Yes, so there was a class issue there, which yes. which gets very much to back to your book, which yeah. is the heart of this. Not only looking at how the military came in, and mm-hmm. I, I think you gave a, a wonderful explanation there, and there's more detail in your book, but you focus in a lot at the on the lives of the soldiers. You look at them. Um, you look at the enlisted men, the class differences. Mm-hmm. 
And um, is there um, any particular favorite stories that where you sort of look at the lives of these men that you see maybe rotated through? Oh, there's too many stories. What do you want? <laughs> we just want one. one. <laughs> just, just one. And just I, we're going to get one. to another. We know yeah. that. that yeah. one, uh, I, I know which one you want me well, to well, wait well, on. But yeah, as, wait as far on. as the little stories, not the big yeah. stories. Right, but, right. Um, so some of my favorite stories deal with the fact that there's this really awkward social tension between the soldiers who have been charged to enforce the laws of the park and therefore have legal authority, right, over visitors. However, most of the visitors that are coming through the park, especially those that would stay in the hotels, are social social upper crust people that really feel that they're and you gotta realize the social class is a thing in the victorian america right and so they kind of feel that they're superior and so and soldiers were seen as as really inferior by these people so they're socially superior over the soldiers but the soldiers have mm. legal superiority over them oh, that's, so, no, that yeah. is that is oh, so interesting yeah, yeah. very it. very interesting tension there. right yeah. so when there's there's a number of cases where um that really comes to the forefront. I mean, there's one at uh, at Canyon at the Bear Show. So the hotels would go dump their garbage, and it was a big sport to go watch the bears eat oh, it. The bears, and yeah. but of course, the army was there to make sure that the tourists don't get too close. And there was this one case where uh, a soldier started yelling at one of the guys, "Back up! No, get away from! Get away! You're too close to the bears!" And the guy was, well, "Who are you?" And, <laughs> and his lady, and so he writes to the commanding officer about how you know how how uppity this soldier was. In fact, he starts. I thought he was just a Boy Scout, you know. I mean, oh, just right. really trying to wow. trying to, you know, kind of emasculate him to a certain degree. You know, right. he's just a boy. No you know? authority over me, right, whatsoever. Yeah. And you know, how dare he talk to me this way? And all the other people thought I should write you too because he was just this way. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, there's that. There was another one where, um, and this one's probably even more my favorite, where um, this group of tourists were carving their names in the in the the features, one of the, the thermal features. And um, a soldier came up and said, no, you can't do that. And then they tried to bribe him out of it. It's like, oh, no, here, here's some money. And so they're relying on their social standing and the tools of their social standing, which is money, to bribe the soldier. So they offer him like 10 bucks or which is good money back then, right? And he refuses it. Then they offer him 50 cents and he takes it but still marches him out, only to take some money, only to give it to the commander to say, look, they did bribe me. Here's the money. Um, But And so he marches him out and and they talk really, really to him, and he's just the, the the tourists are just so put off by it, and and so then when they get out of the park, they tell uh, the uh, someone at the Livingston Enterprise about you know, uh, how awful they were treated by the army, and then the Livingston Enterprise writes this editorial about oh they're just a bunch of dictators there in the park, the army wow. is just a bunch of dictators, and wow. uh, so you've got I mean those kinds of things are happening, so that 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 tension that is there led to a number of things, including a desertion problem. And one, they investigated, they had one of, Port Yellowstone had one of the worst desertion um, uh, percentages of all military forts. Is that right? Wow. That's yeah, and, and, and that's surprising. Yeah. Because we threw, we said, yeah, oh we gosh, they've got to love it. Love They're at Yellowstone. It's there. Maybe the bears are scary, but you know. <laughs> yeah, it's but, so the community around them weren't really supporting them, and the tourists weren't either. So you had because given who could afford to come to the park in those days. Oh yeah, days, so, yeah. Wow. So they were, and the investigation found a number of things. Now, one of those was the disrespect shown the uniform was the actual wording that they used because tourists just 
couldn't handle that that tension. Now, the other thing was, yeah, I mean, the, the, the locals, I mean, but also you realize the wintertime in Yellowstone is a pretty yeah, isolated that's pretty time. Awful. Yeah. And so those soldiers, you know, I mean, you know, first of all, they didn't sign up to be soldiers. So this, they didn't see it as soldierly work. Then they're isolated for, you know, eight months of the year at Fort Yellowstone. And the only place to go is Gardner. And Gardner isn't even as big as Gardner is today. Wow. So, um, and there wasn't a lot to do because, you know, most of Gardner shut down at the end of the tourist season and, right, and left. Right. The only people really that were left there were the prostitutes and the barkeeps. To, and the only reason they were there was because of the, the soldiers. soldiers. Okay. So it wasn't, a, and that was the really the only place to get anywhere. You'd have to go to Gardner then, get up to Livingston and the train didn't always go for several years. The train didn't go during the wintertime because there's no money to be had in it. So that's a long haul to get up to Livingston. So they are really, really They're isolated. They're so isolated, yeah. And that's at the main fort, not to mention what's going on out in the in the park at the the people that are wintering in, out in the park at the small station. So wow. it was a absolutely miserable time. They weren't I mean some soldiers did enjoy it. And there were some units that would come during the summer and then leave. But those that were there for a long time, it wasn't terribly pleasant. Mm-hmm. And and so they had a very serious desertion problem. It wasn't just that. There were other issues, too. Right. You know, the food wasn't always the best and things like that. But okay. um, but they had a really bad desertion problem. And one of that, one of that was the social tension, absolutely. So. Very, very interesting. I love I loved getting into uh, where we're not looking monolithically at people in the past and really yeah. getting below the surface a bit. So along those lines, um, I want to ask you about the chapter that didn't make it into the book. So that's one of the things we wanted to talk about today when we're interviewing you that really piqued our interest. And this chapter is about a man, Lawrence Moon, who in 1912 was accused and charged with homosexual acts with fellow soldiers. Oh, he was charged with immoral conduct. Immoral conduct, okay. <laughs> so I, I tipped the hand. Immoral there. acts, immoral yeah. He, acts. So he, he committed what Im- those things were. <laughs> the formal charge was he committed immoral act with another sol- with two other soldiers. So. Okay, so starting with the story of Private Moon, which is, as you say, a micro-history from which we can mm. learn more about broader societal conceptions about morality fitness to serve, mm-hmm. and sexuality in, right. in general. Um, so tell us a little bit about that story of who, <laughs> of who uh, Lawrence Moon was. All right, so first, yeah, I, I, use it as, um, I use it as a microhistory, which the idea of microhistory is for most people in history, we don't have written records. They're, they're largely silent. And so for the social historian, unless you get the odd diary or, you know, a cache of letters or something, um, you really don't have them, them being able to speak to us. Uh, And it's a very popular type of history, particularly early modern European history, where all of a sudden we start having all these court cases that miraculously have survived. And so, you know, where, you know, in America, we, we have that a greater opportunity to have letters and diaries and things like that. But in early modern Europe and before medieval, you know, we just don't have that kind of that stuff. And so people have taken that. And so we don't know what they're thinking, but we have this one case, which is exceptional. And we all have to agree it's a court case. So it is exceptional. But that being said, if you approach it properly, it can enlighten us into viewpoints that give us a better understanding of the whole. Even though it's exceptional, we have to treat it 
uh, as such. And it, it's a very popular type of, particularly for early modern history, a very type of, of method. And it, the, I think it works really well. It hasn't caught on. There's a few examples that have done well in America. Um, midwife's Tale, for instance, it was, it was a great one on Colonial about this midwife and what, what her life was like traveling up and down you know, rivers and delivering babies. But uh, in this particular case, this one, this particular one, I think was very telling because we don't have a lot of understanding of what's going on in the army regarding homosexuality at this time. Because in 1912, when this case happened, homosexuality was not illegal in the army. That doesn't come until 1916. So, you know, and for those of us that are old enough and remember, um, that was kind of a big deal in the 90s. All of a sudden it Absolutely. was a big deal. Are we going to reintegrate? And, and then, you know, don't ask, don't, don't tell. tell, you yeah, know, it was kind yeah. of a, an unfortunate compromise and, and all of that. But there was a lot of testimony that happened in Congress about this. And they, they laid out their their logic, you know, they're going to make poor soldiers. You know, they don't make good soldiers. So they're, it's going to hurt unit morale was one of the things as well. And, you know, you, you can't trust them and all this kind of stuff. So they laid out this very interesting argument in the 1980s and 90s. So I guess I found this this just serendipitously. I it was going through court martial records, and I got this one. I was like, "Oh, I'm more relaxed. I wonder what this is about." And started flipping through, and the person who was with me looked over and said, "What did that just say right there?" And I was like, "Oh yeah." And so we won't say it here, but um, <laughs> but it was a, it was a soldier's term for an act that was committed on another soldier, very explicitly. You know, an enlisted men. You have a certain vocabulary that they might use for this. And um, so all of a sudden I was like, oh, my gosh. And, and it was a big one. It was a big – it was like 100 and, 140 pages or something in there. And so there, it was a wow. really big, big one. And then there were two other cases with, with the other two soldiers as well. So all of a sudden I was like, man, I got something good here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I hadn't yeah. even read through all of it yeah, in right. detail. And I was like, there, this, is, this is gold right here. I know that's happening. So the story goes along these lines. There was a soldier by the name of Lawrence Moon. And Lawrence Moon um, was brought up on charges um, because, well, one day he was at the at the rifle range and um, the sergeant in charge told another soldier, don't be seen with Moon. You don't want to be seen with him. He's bad news. And Moon finds out. He's like, why not? You know, he's a good soldier. He's a good marksman. He helped his fellow soldiers all the time. He, he, was, he was like the perfect soldier. They called him, in fact, the star of the troop. I mean, he was really eyed for promotion, clean cut, good soldier. Everybody loved him. And so it turned out that there was uh, some rumors about him. And so he says, what are they? I need to know what they are. And they're like, no. And then so he finds out what they are. He's like, well, they're not true. So I want, I want a court-martial to prove my innocence. And so mm -hmm. he has this court-martial. So the court-martial um, happens in 1912. And uh, it's, I think, July. And so it's the summer. It's the height of the tourist season. So, but it's kind of a big deal because you got to bring all the officers in. And there's not a lot of officers around. And so they're all part of this court-martial. And it's, it's very, very striking what uh, the language difference between the enlisted men and the soldiers in regard to this. And so the story goes that um, they had two witnesses that said Private Moon had committed some immoral acts upon them, uh, both of them twice, supposedly. And so there was one private by the name of Bernard who was a uh, immigrant. And on the way back from Gardner, they'd been partying it up in Gardner. And the first time in, uh, they, they come back, they're walking on the road from Gardner and they're all a little drunk. And uh, Bernard, Moon has Bernard kind of get off the road and 
they do their thing um, over there. And uh, then um, uh, a little bit later, uh, Bernard is in town again, and everybody's drinking in town, and there's hotels. They've got hotels, and they're, all, they're soldiers, and so they don't have a lot of money, so they're, they're bunking up with each other. And so there's, and you get this picture of Gardner after with the soldiers in town. It's just, I mean, they're coming and going drinking, and out and drinking, lots of prostitutes right, right, yeah. and, and things like that. And so they... Um, so uh, Moon conveniently convinces uh, Bernard to come to his room, and then they they commit the act again, um, and and so then rumors start to fly about what's going on. Now it's never said, but it seems to be applied that other soldiers kind of might know what's going on here, and so the rumors start talking, and there is a, a cook by the name of Simpson, Private Simpson, um, and he was he was a foul mouthed, awful soldier. Um, drunk all the time. He was he was a good good enough cook. They said when he was sober. Yeah, but reading the transcript, he yeah. sounded he very foul mouthed and yeah. very unpleasant. Yeah, yes. right. and I wouldn't want him as my cook. No, no, no just, just not clean even. Not clean. Just, no. yeah, I'm with you. Just Crystal. kind of a rough oh. a rough guy. Rough guy all around. Yeah. All yeah. around. Shall we yeah. say? Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so he starts hearing these rumors, and he's like, "I want to find out if they're true." And so, and he and he started talking with people. So as a cook, you know, you're in, you're in the kitchen, and they start talking. And Bernard was in the kitchen, and Bernard didn't quite get what was going on. That yeah, Simpson was just fishing. He was just trying to find out. But Bernard thought Simpson knew something. He's like, he says, "Is there one of those in the in the trivia?" He said, "Yes, there is." And he's like, how do you know? And Simpson's like, "Oh yeah, how do you know?" And, and he's like, "Well, because he did it on me." And I was like, "Oh." And so then he found out. And so then, and then this becomes the, this is the part that just kind of starts blowing me away is Simpson finds out and he starts telling some people, he's like, I'm going to find out. We're going to find out if this is true. And um, one day he tells one of his, a couple of his companions, the party's coming over tonight and we're going to find out if it's true. So if he comes over, I want you guys to kind of make yourself scarce. And, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm not quoting directly here, but... Uh, we it, can't quote directly. Yeah, no, I know. Not, anyway, so that's just fine. Because we're keeping this PG-13. <laughs> yeah, right on. So, um, so, you know, make yourself scarce. And so uh, Moon comes over and they, and Moon uh, Simpson tries to ply him with alcohol. And then um, they, they go into the room and, and, and you know, Moon does it again and um the other two soldiers go in to see what happens and they fumble for the light switch and they're trying to see and they see two silhouettes and what's happening and they fumble for the light switch and then sometimes like what are you busting in on me like this get out here and so you know it really creates a problem in that very it, strange yeah he, it doesn't he seem tells like them to come in but then he tells them to get out yeah so so, yeah. so and whether it was truly to find out whether or not this was you know whether Moon was that kind of guy or not was um, seems a little suspicious, mm-hmm. and so yes. then um, the next night it sort of happens again and and like this, and so all of a sudden um, you know now at the court all of this is coming out, and the real interesting part about this again like I said the language that the soldiers use versus what the officers use, and this is you remember again it's not technically illegal in the army at this point uh and also the whole concept of homosexuality and um sexual preference and all that is really just starting to form 
Okay. In fact, the use of the word homosexual is not even a generation old yet, and it's very limited in its use right. in so academic literature. No mention of it in the in the documents and the nope. court documents, and and they say very explicitly what happens in yes. the court documents between and and that's when the I don't know if you call it the prosecution in a a, a court martial, yeah, but they're interviewing. Bernard and Simpson and getting yes. those stories. Yep. But you say, then it gets very interesting, especially when the defense is coming Yeah, out. so the words, the, the words that the enlisted men are using are tied to the act itself, which again, we can't specifically say. But it's they are describing Moon by that act. Is And even Simpson and Bernard are saying, we wanted to find out if he was this. And they're using the act to describe him. Whereas the officers are using words like abnormal, unnatural. And so they're looking at him as a whole. If he's abnormal or unnatural, that's a whole being of him that is wrong versus just this particular act, which might be outside the traditional norms, but, you know, whatever. So the officers are tying a morality to it and and almost a, a, a physiological or psychological abnormality. So it's whether, whether it's a physiological or it's a moral failing. It's yes. some kind of much larger issue. His whole person. Than just the... Okay. His right. whole person and is that's abnormal. not going on with the enlisted men. The no, way they talk about it. And so it was probably my absolute favorite part of the trial is when they call in the expert witnesses. So they call in the defense, like you were saying, um, calls in uh, some expert witnesses because their goal was to say if he is abnormal, then he would never have relations with women. So he calls uh, three expert witnesses, one of which is the doctor, the post-surgeon. And the post-surgeon is like, I got no idea. I got nothing for you here. <laughs> Not much of an expert. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> he doesn't even confidently yeah. make a statement. No. He, he, he just of, says, I don't know. I don't know. He's I, tap I dancing. Not. And, you know, like, hey, what's your experience with this? I, not much. I got no experience, either in experience or in reading. You know, this ain't my field. And so he's like, he's ducking and dodging everywhere. Yeah. So the defense then calls in the other expert witnesses, the local expert witnesses, the practitioners, if you will, <laughs> of the sexual trade, two prostitutes from Gardner. Who they call sporting women. Sporting yeah, women. Sporting women. Hey, and that's, I've, that's I've not the, heard that. Is yeah, that, that is what that's they call That's a common one. Okay, sporting yeah. women. That's for sporting Alrighty. women. Yeah. You know, yeah, it sounds a lot... Classier, than yeah, Victorian. It does. It does. <laughs> Very well, there's, it's the euphemism, you know. Sure, That's what they, sure. they they were all about euphemisms. I'm learning in the Victorian a new one age every day. And, yeah. Yep. Okay. All right. And it's not just. I mean, they call themselves sporting women yeah. too, okay. which I think yes. is very fascinating. So they've bought into that. Yes. Um, and maybe as part of the context too of being in a formal court with officers who would be upper, you know, upper social ladder. Um, you know, so maybe they, you know, they're doing that in context. But, I mean, I thought that was fascinating, too. But the fact that they brought them in as the expert witness, yes. I thought that was great because, yeah, we have this, this tendency to, to look at prostitutes, you know, the soiled doves, you know, the, and, and true, all true. 
But it's, I think, much more complex than that, too. Yeah. I mean, here they are being respected to a certain degree and brought up on that. And they, they're confident as confident They feel they know more than the doctor yeah. oh, regarding absolutely. the sexuality and Mooney in particular, who they yep. call him. Okay. Yeah, they called him. Well, they knew him all by name. Okay. You know, yeah. all those, so he was Mooney. And their language is also particularly interesting because they keep referring to, oh, he's a perfect gentleman. You know, and okay, so I mean, there's a lot of loaded things there about social class but also behaviors that go along with that he was a perfect gentleman and uh, compared to Simpson who you know man they like close the door and would rather not get the money (laughs) yeah I mean they threw him out one of the women talks about throwing him out which I thought was so interesting as well well. and he's drunk and he's awful and he's violent and so you know and so yeah when they kick him out lock the door and he tried he tries to scam them too he's like hey my buddy will pay for it you know and they're like yeah we're not falling for that trick (laughs) um you know so you know i mean it's a real fascinating element of what life is like in gardner right so what was their testimony then well their testimony was they had never heard. They've they've met all sorts of men, which I thought. Yeah, I kind of I have to admit, I chuckled on that one right, too. Yeah, right. I've met all sorts of men, and uh, they one of them said, and you know, I've never seen a man who would be attracted to men, but also women. That just is beyond her mental construct, and just very flat out solid. You know, I know. And, you know, and, and they keep asking. She's real firm. She's like, nope, nope, that, there's no way that they would do that. And so it's really fascinating, again, the idea of, you know, sexual choices at a time before we've, you know, because, and, you know, when I've talked about it, because I've used this, this example in, in, in my class and my students, that students assume that the social constructs we have today are mm-hmm. forever. Mm-hmm. And, the, and and particularly They're in historical. terms historical. That's yeah. what's so fascinating. Exactly. Yeah. And when I start pointing out, no, it's yeah. not. And, and and one that you, most of you, and, and me, I, I'm not going to lie, I was too raised, you know, I mean, there were certain categories of sexual choices and each one had a label and there were expectations of that. I mean, my students now are actually much more open about the fluidity of gender choices and, you know, yeah, sexual choices. Yeah, we're in a, a new era now regarding yeah. that. My kids yeah. are definitely like, whatever yeah exactly yeah which is a beautiful thing yeah it is and it's hard for me when i was writing this because i kept wanting no i shouldn't use that term because it's not either historically accurate or whatever you know but yeah it's like no and so you know but again that was ingrained in me growing up because it's you know i'm an old fart you know and that's just the way the mind works to a certain degree is that i've been socialized into that which is a great example a teaching moment for my students who you are much more open about these kinds of and what's fascinating is that the two soldiers Simpson and Bernard, who had relations with mm-hmm. Moon, they admitted openly in court yeah. that this act was performed on them, yeah. but nobody questioned their sexuality. Well, part of that, I think, and there's a couple things. I mean, one, yeah, Simpson's pretty open about it. Right after his first encounter, he comes out bragging to the other guys. And he's like, yeah, man, look at this. You know, and they're like, oh, man, are you kidding me? And they're rolling their eyes and they're joking about it. And so, I mean, again, it's it's really showing that, you know, there's, there's something going on here that is not what the 1980s military brass would have us believe. Right, right. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, there's that. And, and it is really, you know, the fact, I think, that they're receiving the action rather than the active 
performing it. They didn't performing. instigate right, right. it, and they're not performing well, it. Well, Simpson instigated That's, you can, you <laughs> Bernard always it. said he didn't, and, you know, he didn't know what was going but on until it was too late. But neither of them but, you know. stopped him. So right. Yeah, so I know. Interesting, yeah. right? They even asked that. Yeah. did it to completion, yes. Yeah. You yes. Know, so we'll yeah. leave it at that. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> it's but a, yeah, it's there in yeah, the record. It is, yeah. it is. Yeah. But they there. were court-martialed though too for allowing it to yeah. happen. So they yeah. were court-martialed. Okay, so and what, after the fact yeah. though, that's what's so interesting. Yeah. So what was the outcome? What? Ha- what how did yeah. this all? How did this all play so out? So all end? the testimony was, is, um, you know, and and they they kept reading. You could tell because in a court-martial, the jury, which are also active, so there's a president of the court, which is kind of a judge just to make sure procedure goes along. And then there's several officers, but they're all part of the jury. And they can ask questions. It's not just the prosecution and the, def- excuse me, the defense that it can ask questions, but the jury can ask questions. And you know they're looking to get Moon off because he's a great soldier. And they keep asking. And all the character witnesses that the, that the defense brings in, they're all like, oh, man, he's a great soldier. We love the guy. They bring in officers. Jonathan Wainwright, who is a later very famous World War II general, um, in the Philippines because he's um, in charge of the, the defense of Corregidor, uh, Bataan and Corregidor in World War II. And, and so he's really famous. On, and he was a second lieutenant, first posting is in Yellowstone. And he, he says, no, Moon's a great soldier. He's a, he's a great guy. And everybody says he's a great soldier. In fact, he was so popular with the troops that the accusations didn't matter a hoot. To the soldiers, they, they still really liked him. Yeah. They still really it they wasn't either, a problem. Right, for them. It, it was not a problem for them. Yeah. Not only that, they gathered money to yes. help hire a lawyer because they didn't know what was going to happen. So they thought maybe they it would help if they hired a civilian lawyer. They all contributed money, and it's true. So now, stop there for a second. We fast forward to the 1980s and 90s, where you know, no child. Oh no, it will hurt unit morale. It didn't have to. It, there's evidence here before it was a crime that it wouldn't have hurt. Now, in the 1980s, right, maybe it would have, but that's only because the army made it such over the, mm. you know, the intervening yeah. 70 years. And so they promoted a culture of homophobia. And there's there's some literature on this that the army promoted a culture of homophobia that maybe by the 18, 1980s and 90s it might have been a problem. But it didn't have to be that way. It didn't way. seem that there was a culture of homophobia. Sure, there were rumors, but it was Moon himself. Yeah, and it was just the... one act. Right. And sure, it might be outside the norm, enough to joke with your friends about it. But nonetheless, everybody's like, yeah, whatever, man, whatever. Rolling their eyes, joking with Simpson about it. Mm. So anyway, all this testimony, Moon's a great soldier. And he's athletic. And this was one of the other amazing parts of this this testimony was they really honed in on his athleticism. Mm, He's a great athlete and the competitions, he always comes in first. And the questions that the court would ask, did he fall off? Had he been falling off his athletic performance lately? Well, maybe a little bit, but he's been doing double duty as a clerk and regular soldier. And so, um, you know, but but that was really interesting. Like, oh, you know, has he turned? Has he soured? Has he become sick? You know, kind of a disease theory or something. Interesting. Or or that his masculinity or disease yes. and then and then the other thing just about his character even with the prostitutes so yep. they're trying to mount this defense that yeah. in all oh, those prostitution cases, wasn't a problem yeah, that wasn't a problem right right <laughs> yeah but no i mean the whole character yeah. his character was absolutely impeccable he was the star soldier he was the star of the troop so fast forward stop fast forward to the 18th they don't make good soldiers no 
Right. Not the case. Right. Not the case. We know that, and we know now, of course, now that it's been integrated, they actually, even all those that quietly served before Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and, and whatnot, there were great soldiers. Right. That, exactly. you know, had alternative sexual choices. Right. Um, and so that, you know, wasn't true. And we have evidence that it wasn't true then in, um, you know, 1912. So anyway, he's 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 great. He's popular, good athlete, masculine. He's 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 the kind of guy that I'm guessing some of those officers wanted their daughter to marry. You know, I mean, yeah, he was just he was, he, he was great, and they yeah. find him innocent, and yay, there's much rejoicing, right? Except, oh boy, <laughs> the, the, the twist on this just about blew me too. Yeah. So he's found innocent at like three thirty in the afternoon. So while the court martial is still impaneled, then they have to meet on Simpson and Bernard, who both pled guilty, who just had testified in the previous couple of days about that this happened. So they had really no choice but to plead guilty, which then created a legal paradox. Yeah, that was the problem. <laughs> because Moon is guilty of not doing it, but they're guilty of allowing it to happen you can't have no. it both ways. Yeah, right, uh. right. So as soon as they were done with um, the arraignments of, of Simpson and Bernard, uh, they, uh, they, they reconvene and, and find Moon guilty. So he was found not guilty and guilty. Wow. And so mm. Within the space of the same day. Within the space of three hours, three, four oh, hours. Incredible. It was because incredible. they really, the other gentlemen the other men enlisted men who didn't have maybe such high moral standing they well said, certainly at least simpson for sure. right you yeah. know in, in the eyes of those who testified or made the decisions so interesting oh but then the twists just keep coming because <laughs> moon is then drafted back into the army in world war one and he refused he's like look man you guys kicked me out yeah and i have a copy of his draft card he's like yeah he claims exemption because he was court martial so did he he was dishonorably discharged. dishonorably discharged Discharged them. Yep, all okay. three of them were. Okay. But then they drafted him. And then they drafted him wow. again. Wow. And he's like, nope, I'm out. Nope, I'm out. And so, but then the army's like, well, good question. We don't yeah. know. And so they, they allow him to not serve. And he doesn't consider himself. They continue to pay him. They, they say, you're in the army, but you don't, well, you don't have to do anything. So they pay him. But then the war ends. And it's a moot point at this point, And they discharge him. So now he's been found not guilty and guilty. He's been dishonorably discharged. And now honorably discharged. <laughs> Which is hilarious unto itself that yeah. this guy has had this, and um, then he's um, later on he's he's you have to fill out his draft card again for World War Two even though he's like fifty years old. Wow! Right. But he doesn't try to claim an exemption, and, he's, and it doesn't become an issue. He's never drafted. But yeah. you know, I mean, that irony I think is wow. is absolutely hilarious. Very strange. The great thing about it though is that considering that he was honorably discharged the last time and and yeah he actually um tries to have that his original conviction overturned and stuff in the 20s and so he really feels that this is you know kind of he a doesn't personal want state. that on his it record it kind of follows him yeah. the yeah. rest of his life yeah. now he gets yeah. married but he gets married Does yeah no kids? children no children no children okay. but then when he dies he's allowed to be buried in a military cemetery hmm. because he was honorably discharged whether or not he thought he actually was serving or not that that second stint um, that honorable discharge allowed him to, you know, uh, receive military honors. And so um, at some point when I'm back in D.C., I, I plan on actually going to his grave. Where is he buried? Uh, he's buried in, in Maryland. One of the, I can't okay. remember the exact one, oh, yeah. but it's, it's outside Baltimore, um, wow. one of the military wow. cemeteries there. That's a, there's a map. That if you look it up, you can find it. Yeah. And go to it, so. 
So this is this is a, an amazing story and a really important story for today. I think and so, so um, but this story did not make it in the book. No. So um, can you explain, Tom, why this good story didn't? <laughs> and you wrote a whole chapter. You wrote a chapter. This yes. was going to be one of the chapters in the book. So yes. can you explain why it why it didn't make it? Well, in? It, yeah, it became a little contentious because. Um, so the University of Kansas was the publisher, and I kind of went around and around. They were like, we're not sure we want to put this in. Cause, and, and even the reviewers who reviewed the book were like, yeah, okay, this is a very nascent topic right now. It's, you know, this is good stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, I had to, and for this purposes of this interview, we, we kept the PG-13, but to really full the analysis. And I don't, I didn't use it gratuitously, I don't believe. I mean, it was academic and it was, yeah. we had to use it because you have to understand the terminology that was being used to understand the mental constructs of, of what was happening. And um, so, but I didn't use it gratuitously or, or you know, for, you know, just the thrill. Salacious the, purposes. Salacious right, purposes, right. right. So, but I, but I had to use it, and it was you know. You had a much more dramatic, open-chested gentleman <laughs> on the cover, perhaps, right. or something. If we if we had all those words inside, okay, getting right. back anyway. So, yeah. so, you so didn't it was use there. It salaciously. We and got and that. some people wouldn't, you know, would would obviously be turned off by that. In, <laughs> yeah. in, for uh, academics, wouldn't, and that was actually one of the things that the reviewer says. Like, you know, academics can handle this, but the public can't. And the problem mm-hmm. the reviewer said is that this book has market potential in Yellowstone. People like military history. This uh, this isn't you know it's a well written book that you know you, you know tourists would be find it accessible, not just academics. And so you know you could sell this in the park. Well, we went round and round with the public. I'm like, no, I really want this in here. I mean, this seems discriminatory that you're trying to take this out. And also, these guys, maybe just a little bit homophobic that you got right in the reviews, by the way. Just going to throw that out there to you. And they were great. Their reviews are great. I don't want to, but, you know, really, I was fighting for this. And I, yeah. was, I was really kind of put off that it wasn't, it was, was on the axe on the chopping block here. And so in the middle of this, so I, it, it kind of stalled the book's publication for a while because mm-hmm. kind of end up in a holding pattern um, for the most of the, the summer of, um, I guess, well, the spring, it would have been the spring of, of 2019 and, and um, into the summer. And, and in that time, I, I, I shortened the paper down for a presentation at a conference on masculinities, uh, mm-hmm. uh, historical, historicizing masculinities and, and um up at the University of Newcastle in England. And um, so it was an international topic. It was a great conference. And so I presented this, and they were like, oh, this is great. And they lots of good questions given to you. They, they really found, which made me feel good about it. And so then right. in the cocktail hour afterwards, I'm drinking wine, I'm talking with them. There was a, a gentleman there that was from, he was a part of the academic press or had been part of the, the committee of the academic press of, of Cambridge. And um, he said, you know, and I explained that everything about, you know, uh, really at loggerheads with this. And he goes, well, here's the deal. This story has to be told. I mean, you got to get it out there. Um, there's too much good, good, good stuff here. And, you know, it, it's important. However, he said, I do understand where the press is coming from because university presses aren't about money. But when they have the opportunity for money, that is important because if they can make money off of a book, that allows other books that might, other scholars who might not get published, other books that, you know, kind of on the edge that are important, but might, mm-hmm. they might lose money on, this allows them to be able to do that. So other scholars actually could benefit from this. And you get this, this article, out, you get it out as an article or something, 
the story will get out there and you know eventually it's going to make its way to the popular and i was like i want the popular people you know, i want everybody to see this and, you know you know it'll get there but you know if you get out as an article you'll actually you know you might consider this and you know softening your stance because it allows other people to get books published at the university of kansas that might have been on the margin good great scholarship but they know they'd lose money off of and i was like Okay, make me feel guilty. Thank you. Um, so I softened my stance and I agreed to take it out. And I tried, and, and part of it too is that there was so much good stuff about you know the character of these soldiers, like Simpson and and what Gardner was like on you know payday and stuff like that. That I kind of had to pull some things out and rework some of the other chapters to try to put it in there. And okay. I don't feel that I got it full justice. I mean, you don't get the full character of Simpson, but um, without knowing the story of the Simpson, story of yeah. Simpson, right, right. exactly. And so yeah. Right. Well, it's, it does present such an interesting question about who decides what gets out to the public and in what ways, mm -hmm. and to what degree you have control over being able to tell the story the way you want, integrate it into a book, or maybe give it a separate right. platform. And, and that was one of the reasons we thought this would be such right. an interesting... Well, and I forgot to mention, actually, too, that part of, um, in this whole discussion and delay, yeah, there was a lot of giving take with the press and the University of Kansas Press came back and said um, here's a problem the Park Service doesn't allow anything with sex in it to be sold mm -hmm. so they would automatically be cutting themselves out of the, the the bookstores in the park the gift shops and the visitor centers and hotels and stores so um, so that was that that strengthened their position you know as, as we're digging our heels and they found this thing and, and lo and behold it is true and, and understandably the parks want to keep a nice clean image it makes and, sense you know, it makes it makes sense, sense. Yeah. so that was that you know so that was i relented you know so right because there would have been too many asterisks or something where yeah. those words would have been yeah i know right <laughs> right so. and, and plus you know i mean as as hard as i was trying to maintain the moral stance on it too and you know sorry kind of like their stuff to be read. I mean, usually yeah. it's, you know, you're lucky if 20 people have read it, you know, and, you know, it's in a library or two and, and that's it. So to have people have, you know, because there's so much good stuff in there and so many great stories that, of course, you want people to do it. Um, but, you know, I mean, I really wanted to and tried very hard. But the story of Moon will come out at some point. Um, so, yeah. you know, and, and it'll get out there and hopefully I've done a service to other scholars. And perhaps your story... Um, excerpted from the book allows you to do what you've done here in talking to us where you really related it to the trajectory of the military's perception of LGBTQ members and, mm -hmm. and how that has changed historically and as you said just this idea that these historical constructs change so much yep. over time they're not they're fluid and then Crystal you had a, um, a question about uh, the preface of the book. Yeah, yeah. So it, um, in the preface, you talk about the past being a different place. Mm -hmm. And this is what you say. Um, the people of the past acted differently, had different morals, and even thought differently than we do today. Mm -hmm. The historian needs to keep that in mind, especially when researching a place to which they are emotionally drawn, mm -hmm. as you are drawn to Yellowstone Park. So can you speak to that comment a little bit more broadly? And I think that really speaks to our conversation here oh, today. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially this yeah. last bit. I mean, that whole the whole constructs of, of sexuality, I think, are really brought out and in, 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 you know, reinforce that, that particular point. 
Um, yeah, I mean, we're never going to know Caesar the way Caesar knew Caesar or the way his wife knew Caesar, and we'll never know, you know, any historical figure, um, especially some that are, you know, become icons, the Lincolns and the Washingtons of the world that, you know, they become these, these marble people that are really hard to, to know because we already come with so much baggage from the present thinking about them. And so it's hard to, to really do that. And, and as historians, we like to try to put ourselves as best we can into a context to understand the people of that time. It is impossible. It is absolutely impossible. Um, it's like nailing jelly to a wall. I mean, you, you try it, it's not going to work. Um, and we do it, and, and this is the problem with, like, especially textbooks. Monographs, it's a little bit different. But textbooks, you know, they have this Arab authority about them. This is what it is. It's, it's the way they're written, which is also why they're so boring. So absolutely boring. But right. um, they, uh, but they have this Arab authority. This is the way history happened. And that's not true, you know, and we're getting close. We can get a close approximation, but we will never truly be able to drill into the mindset of someone else. And, and that last story of, of Moon is, is a perfect example of that. And I admit, you know, I tell my students, especially in our historical methodology, you got to be the most self-aware person you can be when you're doing history. What are you bringing to the table? Right, you have you know, to look at every single bit. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we, we go through the typical, okay, what do you ask her? Who wrote it? When did they write it? Why did they write it? All blah, 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 blah. And, and then I started out, okay, now let's get to a little bit more effective stuff. What is that, what is that document doing to you? What do you mean? You read this document, and which is why I use excerpts from the moon transcript. What's it doing to you when you read that? Right. And it's right. like, oh, I didn't think about that. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, that's what you. That's where you make the next leap as, in your historical development. You exactly. Do, you do feel emotional responses when mm-hmm. you're reading these primary sources, I feel like, right. in mm-hmm. particular. Yeah. And so yeah, I'm, what do. I'm really trying to get at is them understanding the emotional impact of that document's having them. But then the flip side of that, what are you doing to that document? Yeah. When you're reading that document, what are yeah. you doing on the flip side of that? Mm-hmm. Especially one that's using you know the language and the, and the topic that, that Moon does. It's like, what are you doing to that? Are you trying to pigeonhole him? Yeah. Are you trying, you know, is it is it put you off because of your own personal pro, you know, things that you have in your life that, you know, you've brought in and what you're bringing to the table that you're having your emotional response and therefore you're trying to shove this square peg into a round hole? Right. You know, yeah, and you right. have to be super aware of that. Mm-hmm. And we can never, you know, I'll, you know, as much as, as I would love to sit down and have a cup of coffee with Moon. I would yeah. just absolutely <laughs> love to sit down and talk to that guy. You know, and I think that I, I feel I've done him justice. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I could be completely off on it. Right. And in Yellowstone, you know, I mean, part of this, too, is the, the shock of, you know, Nancy, when, when I was like, well, yeah, they hated it. And there was a dessert where you're like, really? Why? Because right. we all, especially people mm-hmm. who go and spend, you know, a week or two there or whatever, they're like, oh, gosh, it's lovely. This is paradise. It's great. Okay, it's a lot different when you're spending all the time there. And now I was lucky enough to do that for, for several summers. And um, for me, and I worked at one of the prime locations at Bridge Bay Marina. Nobody leaves Bridge Bay. Everybody loves the marina because it's fairly quiet and you're on the lake and you get to be on boats all the time, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, some of the other places, there were, there were people that didn't like working in the park. And there was a revolving door of people that would yeah. come. It wasn't what they thought. And they're out of there. I mean, they right. hated it and they were gone. 
which when I first got there and, you know, because I, I worked at the marina as a cashier. Then I worked as assistant controller at Lake Lodge and we had to do payouts in the accounting office, which means people quit and they wanted their money before they left because they didn't want to have to wait for their paycheck. And I was like, when they told me this is how you're going to pay, I'm like, nobody please, what are you kidding? No one's going to leave. No one's going to leave. Working here. I mean, yeah. it was like, you know, two, three times a week, we yeah. were doing payouts. And I got pretty good at it, but nonetheless, it was, it was, it was shocking. So you'd talk with them as you're calculating, punching numbers in and, and stuff like that. And, um, you know, some of them really, I mean, the nature just kind of freaked them out more than they thought it wow. would. And yeah. so, you know, whereas, you know, I've had this ongoing love affair with Yellowstone my entire life. Yeah, it wasn't always the case with everybody. And, and I'm not going to lie, that probably helped me ask different questions of these sources, especially when we got to the desertion part of it. Um, helped me ask different questions that I might not have asked otherwise. Right. Um, but also being super self-aware of my relationship with Yellowstone and what that was having me do when I read these, which was problematic because there was a, one of the chapters that ended up being an article in uh, Montana Magazine of Western history. And people were like, why are you so negative about it? I'm like, <laughs> I don't feel I'm being negative. But on the other hand, but maybe we, I'm overcompensating because everybody right. has such an overpositive view. That's what I was going to say. If you, if you just paint the rosy picture, though, you're not... You're not giving voice to the experiences right. of, of these historical figures. And, and that's so interesting how your experience with the payouts of people leaving in your own life, you then, you I know just from doing historical research, it's the same with doing archaeology, where you're choosing to put your next unit in the ground, but what mm -hmm. documents are you going to go to next? Right. What thread are you going to chase and what can end up? Because as you said, mm -hmm. there's way more in the National Archives oh, yeah. than you can possibly all get your mind around. Um, so that's a fascinating part, I always think mm -hmm. of, of doing the research part that yeah. not everybody gets to talk about. So on that note, um, we know that everyone has a, a, their own vision of Yellowstone National Park, some very romantic yeah. and rosy, as we were saying, focusing on the beauty or the wildlife, the wildness of the place. Now they're trying to also bring back history of Native peoples, indigenous mm -hmm. occupation of those lands. Um, and then also as a place where the national agenda for conservation and stewardship really first began. So there's so much symbology wrapped up in our parks. Did writing this book and focusing specifically on the, the history of the military oversight change anything about how you think you see the park or um, relate I mean, to it? Yes. Yeah. I mean, obviously it did. I mean, one is is the understanding the, the broader context of the Park Service Ranger and a greater appreciation of, of who they are. Because I, when I entered this especially, it was kind of, oh, the soldiers were going to do their job. The Park Service is going to plagiarize what the Army is doing. Sorry, using it. Uh, you know, teacher term there, but you know they're going to just copy what the army was doing, and and everything moves forward. It turned out not quite to be the case. In fact, it turned out to be the soldiers did their job, and they did a number of things really badly, and everybody knew it. And so when they, but they knew that soldiers couldn't do this job, so they, by being an example of what they couldn't do, they then actually helped create what they realizing what they needed for park service rangers which you know instead of two having 200 soldiers do the job they only have like 24 rangers do the same job wow so, and they had yeah. to invent that whole and, field that yeah. didn't exist. well but they did but then the army already kind of scouted mm -hmm. out mm -hmm. pardon the pun there scouted out what what some of the weaknesses and what the job really was going to entail 
Um, and then, but also how the, the, you know, as, and it doesn't necessarily specifically come in this book, but yeah, with my own, you know, as I'm wrapping my mind around all of this too, about how even that evolved over time, you know, with the interpretation angles and things that the army, um, had done, but were forbidden to do too, because they were lying to tourists crazy that the park service like, okay, we need to have trained people to do this. Um, and then, but then the conservation element of it too. I mean, they were still, even after the army's gone, the park service was still hunting predators because of the conception of what game animals were important you know game animals are important predators are bad um fighting fires is good even if they're natural born because we don't fully embrace the ecology and bears are pets that you feed sandwiches well you, you let people you let people do it until yeah. the 1970s yeah, you don't do it, you know? but you're like, until yeah. there's some problems with that and then yeah, you, stop. Yeah, you still want to you still want to help them have a healthy skepticism about bears yeah. but yeah, whatever you know and there's a disney movie where they that's just part of the fun of it is yeah. you know and stuff out of the out of the car door um and then the whole conservation angle and, and really it's it's amazing how the park service you know really especially in in starting in the 1930s there was this idea that hey maybe we need to start protecting the nature from people rather than trying to bring more people to the park and then the great depression hit and that kind of went out but then you know after the war after world war ii there was a big influx with the wealth that happens and people are moving around and america's love affair with cars, cars and, you know yeah. all this you know all this tourism modern tourism and then you have mission 66 where the park service is like yeah we need to build stuff in the park but how do we balance now their idea of well maybe we need to preserve wilderness instead of just you know bring people we got to preserve it because otherwise we're going to love it to death and um, so then they, you know, trying to balance that and, and, you know, then there's lots of stuff in Yellowstone itself that happens with like particularly building Canyon Lodge. And if you've ever been to Canyon Village, it really stands out as this eyesore to a certain degree of this awful postmodern architecture in the middle of the wilderness as opposed to something like Gold Faithful Lodge, which is this beautiful, you know, Yosemite, there's all these old lodges and people wanted that image, but you got this concrete monstrosity here at Canyon that, you know, and it was ugly and people hated it. So they'd rather go stay at the old Canyon Hotel, which had a cracked foundation and stuff and they, they, because it had a little bit more rustic feel. And so one of the reasons, I mean, it was falling apart because they stopped investing in it anyway but they bulldozed that so that people force people into this and people didn't like it and the prices and so you get this whole thing that's that's going on that there's so many moving parts between you know the the concessionaires who are trying to make money and then the government who's trying to provide some level of oversight to this and then of course you got politics thrown in all over the place um, and so you've got all this, and then the tourists, and what do they want out of this? They don't want postmodern architecture, no matter how much government spent on it and private industry spent on it. They want rustic feel. And, you know, Grant is, is oftentimes, uh, Grant Village, which is even more modern, actually, is oftentimes referred to as the mistake by the lake. Because, again, it doesn't have that kind of nature feel. Everybody, everybody wants to stay at Old Faithful Inn, right? everybody does and it's beautiful and i've only got to do it because i was in the park working in the park and i pre-seasoned uh, at old faithful because the marina didn't open yet and so the only time i've ever gotten to stay in the lodge itself was because i had an inside track to it because i mean mm. it's expensive and it's popular and you can never get to it because that's what people want so you've got all these different moving parts and you know what is the idea of the park and uh, of the mission of the park and that's very fluid over time as well. Yeah. And so, well, it's you know, fascinating because why they started it and then 
that the fact that it almost went away, yeah. as you yeah. said from the beginning, right. is, is fascinating. I mean, we, we created this thing, and they didn't know what they were creating, and then they almost lost it. So yeah. amazing. And, and now we're still trying to figure, figure it out. Yes. You know, I mean, even today, we're yes. still trying to figure well, yeah, like, this thing you, out, you know, Yellowstone National Park. And, so. and whose, whose interests are most important? Because, like, when they brought the wolves, reintroduced the wolves, which I was I was working in Yellowstone at the marina, and they actually they brought the wolves in and, and put them on the boats and took them to the far side of the lake. And so I literally right there witnessing this, this huge event. Terribly contentious. Still, yeah, you can go still. through West Yellowstone and buy sh- shirts that say "Shoot, shovel, and shut up." Yeah. Um, so you know, it was it was it hasn't really gone away. But who's benefit to the park? Because the local ranchers, of course, and and I'll respect this. They have their views about this. Um, Bursalosis with uh, with hunting yes. the mm-hmm. the bison that come mm-hmm. out. You know, I mean, there's a lot of interests in this park, mm-hmm. and who's you know how you navigate that. Man, I wouldn't want to be the politician that has, or the yeah. superintendent that has to deal with all that because there's so much, and it was happening then. But, you know, the, the Army settled things down, literally comes riding into the rescue, so to speak, you know, kind of like a good Western. Calvary comes in and at least settles it down and saves the park. But the parks are a discussion in how they fit into American society. It's a discussion that's not going to end anytime soon, I don't think. Yeah, you know, and I think that going from the past to the present, we see that these discussions are ongoing and won't be stopping anytime soon. So, and that's, uh, and I love that part of your book as well. So, um, Thank you so much, Tom, oh, for your time today. My and and it was such a good conversation. It was such a um, it was so interesting to hear about what got left out of the book. <laughs> but I want to let people know where they can get the book um, if if they would like to to read the entire book, not the one chapter, not but, that chapter, <laughs> not that chapter, but the rest of it. Which is I'm just more than willing good. to share that if you're interested. <laughs> right, right. So we probably can, have a copy here. We do. I we have it? copies here at the Extreme History <laughs> Project headquarters, so you could come and get it. here. Here, but you could probably find it at your local bookstore as well. Yep. Yep, local bookstore. Well, I'm thinking that special chapter. Yeah, oh, the special chapter, the yeah. Special, you oh, guys yeah. have one here on We Bob, do, we so. do, yeah. You can let yeah. people photo. Okay, okay. okay. So. <laughs> I have your permission to do you, that, huh? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but I mean, the book I, itself, where do you I'm on it? tape as having nailed the, the story, so. Yeah. yeah you know, <laughs> no one's going to get it. I've got, I've got to get getting it out there. But you are going to get the the chapter, the missing chapter, out there in different ways yes, as well. Yes. Yeah. So maybe in a journal article or yeah, I'm hoping a journal article. Yeah. Or actually, I was great. talking with um, a colleague of mine in political science about maybe we could do a book out of this, especially oh, yeah. bringing in the the more modern stuff that would be very good. So it might yeah. be a, a small small book too. I don't know. We'll that see. sounds great. That journal was, really was what I was kind of angling for, and what I but. He opened new new ah. possibilities that would be fun. So. Yeah. Well, we'll have much more to look forward to with you. But um, our time is up, so sure. we want to thank you so much for um, talking with us today, coming uh, over to Bozeman, talking about your fascinating research, both the published and the as yet unpublished. <laughs> so join us again on The Dirt on the Past to hear more engaging interviews with historians, archaeologists, and anthropologists discussing why the past matters today. Thanks, and until next time, keep searching out the The dirt dirt on on the the past. past. 
You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past.